Hi, everybody. It's Mark Bennett speaking, Head of Agribusiness here at ANZ in Australia. Welcome to the summer edition of our In Focus Commodity Insights. We'll cover a range of commodities today and also a bit of reflection on the year that was and maybe a touch on what 2021 might have for us. But really, it's been all about COVID, hasn't it? And even bushfires at the start of the year set a really ordinary tone. The the COVID-19 pandemic became bigger, faster than perhaps early thoughts might have might have pegged it and, and and it was a great unknown that we really saw for the rest of the year but with all of the unknown and all of the comings and goings the things that we were afraid of mostly from an agri perspective it didn't result in the, the trauma it could have and whilst we feel particularly for those that were caught up in pockets of the seasonality and the trade dependence of seafood into China or those that were selling closer to retail into some of those outlets that were shut down for the winemakers and and exporters and traders into the market. You know, these were areas that were more heavily impacted. We've had the barley tariff issue and we've had the meat processing difficulties in in labelling that created problems into the China market as well. There might be others, um, but overall, the biggest thing for Australian Agri this year was the return to season. Fantastic conditions in areas that needed it most. It's still probably a little bit dry through parts of Queensland and the WA crop could be stronger, but overall, really, really good. Combined with persistently strong commodity prices, uh, take wool aside, most of our key commodities are trading in really strongly profitable territory. We've got record low interest rates for those that are borrowing in this market, not so good for those on cash. Uh, We've seen record high land prices in a lot of areas as well. Good for sellers, perhaps. Is it good for buyers? A lot of debate around that. Overall, we've had strong underpinning demand for product and a high Aussie dollar, really, or a strengthened Aussie dollar at closer to 70 to 74 cents in the latter period you know, typically might have seen shine come out of prices that hasn't translated. So really a a, a great comeback for Agri, a demonstration of resilience in the face of COVID. Perhaps the clouds around it have been the trade instability, the geopolitical tensions for an industry that is trade exposed, always has been. And then you've got the, the impact of COVID in other global economies, key trading partners of Australia. How will that impact demand? Will there be continuing restrictions in the way people live, uh, work and consume? And for all of the government and regulatory response that comes with that, makes it really difficult to see how that might impact on our own markets here and the way we can effectively trade and be profitable and sustainable into global markets that has been and has proven to be a really stellar period for Australian agriculture to take out the droughts. So um, there's a lot going on in that, a lot to look back on and a fascinating fascinating outlook. And I might firstly go to Adelaide Timbrell from our economics team to talk to the economic conditions both here in Australia, but perhaps also touching on the external environment and how we see demand holding up and the key economic indicators that are at play here. And as we consider that, we might touch on them as we talk through a range of commodities as well. But over to you, firstly, if I can, Adelaide, how's our economy holding out and what can we expect? Thank you. So COVID-19's impact 
on the Australian economy was a lot quicker and deeper than what we've seen in other recessions. And that does mean that it will take a little bit longer to come back up to um, the kind of labour market conditions and economic conditions that we were used to. Um, so we did see a 7% decline in GDP in the uh, June quarter this year, which was really the bulk of um, economic loss that we will see through the COVID downturn because that was when everyone was locked in the house. People weren't able to consume as they normally would and businesses weren't able to operate as they normally would. We generally have not seen many GDP declines in a single quarter above 1%. So 7% really is very different to what we've seen in other downturns. However, when we look to other countries, it doesn't look quite as negative. So for example, the UK uh, in the same quarter actually dropped their GDP by about 20%. Uh, and in the US, it was around the 10% mark. So we've actually done kind of okay when we compare ourselves to those other countries. And particularly as we see how COVID-19 has been contained in Australia, you know, through the first wave nationally and the second wave in Victoria, we've really done a lot better than other countries as well. Global case numbers have actually now topped 60 million uh, in Australia. In terms of our active cases, we've got less than 100 uh, and we've had less than uh, around 30,000 total Australia as well. So we're doing a lot better on that front. That's allowed us to see a lot of optimism in our economy. People are allowed to leave the house, but they're also confident to do so, confident to spend money uh, and make investments as well. So the housing market's turned around a lot quicker than expected. That's a really great a great indicator for consumer confidence. And although we lost 870,000 jobs at the beginning of the COVID downturn, we've actually seen 648,000 of those jobs regain. Uh, and we do expect to see after um, JobKeeper, we expect to see the unemployment rate go up a little bit um, above 7%, which is what it is now. Um, but we're seeing a lot of optimism in the economy and we may see that by the end of next year, things are, are looking a lot better than they were kind of in the last few months. So although there's been a huge amount of economic loss around the world and that global coordination and restriction of movement in terms of economic impacts has created a really strong uh, economic loss from COVID-19, we're also seeing a lot of optimism that really strong downward turn in the economy could be followed by a relatively quick upturn. And our GDP forecasts for the September quarter are actually an uplift of 3%, so bringing back around a third of that economic loss that we saw in the June quarter. Adelaide, is it fair to say that for all of the downside that's occurred and we've seen the first hit on our, our GDP numbers, the amount of intervention in the economy, the, the government spending, the relief packages available to people, is the shock still coming? And if so, when and how deep might it be before we continue on a, a better journey, perhaps? Absolutely. So the fiscal support that we've seen this year has been absolutely critical to our economic activity during and after some of the COVID-19 impacts that we saw. So we actually saw for this financial year, government payment went up to 35% of GDP. Uh, and so that's a lot, that's, you know, maybe six to seven times higher than we've seen in normal times. That has really mitigated some of the risks to 
to employment, um, to business shutdowns uh, and to other negative impacts of lockdowns and of the kind of economic scarring that's come out of those extended lockdowns for some businesses. What it's done is it's reduced the amount of economic pain that we'll see in the entirety of this period, but it's also delayed some of the pain. So business insolvencies have actually been lower this year than in a normal year. I think we all know that's not because business is booming. It's because of JobKeeper and massive wage subsidies across the economy. So in the March quarter next year, we are likely to see a little bit more unemployment, maybe some business shutdowns perhaps as well as fewer businesses are able to rely on those higher JobKeeper payments. However, compared to at the start of the downturn, we've got a lot more reason to be optimistic about size of some of those shocks. And we're seeing that as fewer businesses are even eligible for JobKeeper uh, in the current quarter, that's a really great sign to say that there's not really a lot of businesses now that have had ongoing revenue kind of downturns. And that's been something that will give us a good sign for perhaps a much smaller rise in unemployment than we may have forecast, you know, three to six months ago. So even though we are likely to see unemployment kind of tick up in the first half of next year, it just may not be quite as bad as, as what we were thinking. And certainly the fear of double-digit unemployment rates is kind of over now. Uh, and that's going to be a great thing for consumer spending and also for, you know, just allowing people to have spare money to spend that little bit extra on things like tourism, dining and those other products which stimulate, you know, the economy in quite a broad-based way. I think compared to other countries, we're doing quite well on that front, whereas other countries we may see the spare cash free for things like tourism and um, inbound tourism to Australia or any luxury uh, agriculture exports from Australia to those other countries may have some downside risks just from certain countries not really doing quite as well on the economic front as we have locally. Adelaide, when it comes to debt, there's never been a cheaper time for most people to have debt, uh, whether that's business or government. Is the nature of borrowing that's gone with all this something that we're feeling okay about? Um, I guess the other caveat here is that we expect to move, move out of COVID into a vaccinated world and prevention that would you know, reduce the chance of any third, fourth waves that might come through. But with all that debt in the system, do you think it's a problem? Is it in fact something that might limit future interest rate increases? How, how do we feel about the medium-term outlook on, on interest rates? I know you can't predict it necessarily. So when it comes to government debt, it's not a worry at all. We are facing very, very low interest rates. The Reserve Bank has been very explicit to say that interest rates will not rise for the next three years and have also created some other easing measures by purchasing bonds uh, and other financial assets to reduce borrowing costs for both short-term and longer-term lending. So for governments, you know, the best way to reduce their debt burden is to make sure the economy is growing and that has been the approach. So on the government side, it's not really uh, worrisome. When it comes to personal household debt, we've actually seen credit growth relatively slow. So while there are a lot of people applying for new mortgages and we've seen owner-occupier lending in particular reach above 30% year-on-year growth, we're also seeing a lot of other people pay down their personal debt and pay down their mortgage debt um, due to actually being not able to spend as much as they normally would. When it comes to COVID-19's economic impact, there's been a real concentration of job losses for lower income 
and younger workers, those people tend to have less debt than older, higher income earners because they have been locked out of the property market um, due to the housing boom over the last decade. The, there are some obvious social and equity downsides to that. But the upside is that the people with debt were much less likely to have lost their job. They're much more likely to be able to pay. And for a lot of households, it's actually been a strengthening in their financial position and a reduction in their total debt. So although we're seeing a lot of lending going on, we know that people's mortgages, the cost of servicing those mortgages isn't going to increase for at least the next three years. We know that the people who are borrowing more are facing tougher lending standards than they were, say, six to eight years ago. So there is some mitigation of risk there as well. And we also know that the people who are able to borrow are also in very stable employment, which allows us to see a relatively low risk on that front. Financial institutions have also put in mortgage deferrals and medium forbearance measures. So we know that there's leeway for a lot of people to handle that debt without creating a lot of downward economic side effects for businesses. The main issue really is demand for lending rather than any risks there. We know that businesses are looking at a lower population growth, low wage growth, kind of shaky environment over particularly the next six months, and that is going to reduce their appetite to take on risk and invest. But the more we see that risk appetite come up, the more jobs get created and the more avenues people can spend and earn money in the economy. So the government and the Reserve Bank are both working hard to make that happen uh, and hopefully we'll see some virtuous cycles um, come out of that lending appetite as people's confidence grows into the future. Yes, and we've seen debt continue to grow in the agribusiness sector and whilst uh, some of that might have been to cover some poorer seasons, there's certainly a case to be made for investment for growth in profitable business structures still and you know, all of that's driving a fair bit of confidence and uh, as indicated in our ANZ Roy Morgan research recently. Adelaide, how do you describe the geopolitical environment at the moment? I think that globally we are seeing a lot of emphasis on renationalisation and there are some tensions between trade partners, particularly we're seeing Australia uh, and China faced some increasing tariffs. We've seen wine tariffs in particular increase. We've also seen some possible risks to exports in, you know, lobster, um, coal, timber, and some other key commodities as well. Um, longer term, though, I think, you know, we do have a strong incentive on both sides to keep trade open going. Australia is a small open economy, so for us exports are relatively important. And for China as well, you know, they do benefit from the products that we trade with them and they benefit from our trading relationship too. So in the longer term, I think the strong economic incentives are to, you know, smooth over some of those geopolitical tensions. But when we look more broadly, we are faced with a coordinated global downturn, which means a lot of countries with a little bit less money than usual and that's something that may see you know some changing trade relationships and uh, economic priorities among governments over the coming years as well. Okay moving into wheat and grains I must admit uh, some way through this year I thought looming big crop uh, some northern hemisphere condition weak uh, but Aussie dollar looked to be strengthening there was a danger that 
a big supply of grain out of the Australian market might have had a negative impact on prices. But here we are today uh, looking at a fantastic crop and prices holding up incredibly well, notwithstanding the Aussie dollar trading at closer to 73-ish cents. Maddie, things are looking actually pretty good. Yeah, they really are. So harvesting's obviously well underway, and it's down now towards the southern states. Um, and the reports we're getting in, particularly from the crop from the harvest in New South Wales, is that it really is a fabulous crop, one of their best ever. Um, and so they're looking to somewhere between 10 to 12 million tonnes of wheat out of New South Wales alone, which is a huge change from last year, obviously. But off the back of that and harvests across the rest of the nation and the feedback we're getting in is that we're expecting the Australian wheat crop to beat uh, Fisher Bears forecast. So that would be see it pushing up towards about 30 million tonne mark, which is a wonderful result. So, yes, wonderful amount of wheat coming in. And then to add to that, as you said, a strong price, uh, price sitting at basically the same level levels of last year, um, a strong global trade environment. Things are looking pretty up. Um, if we're meant to always sound a note, note of caution on some of these things. Um, perhaps the note of caution going around is about the global market and how prices don't really seem to be responding to another record crop for wheat um, and how prices continue to go up basically regardless of the news. Um, and there is some concern that that might keep momentum. Um, but for the moment, to Australian farmers, everything looks fairly great um, to the Australian wheat and grains crop. This has been the concern, the fact that we tended to have been producing more than we're consuming. Our stocks to use ratios were getting higher and higher, and yet here we are in that price environment. Is this a case of a bit of global stockpiling, trade instability, government regulation, really getting in the way of a normal demand supply environment that would typically deliver a price? And is that therefore going to see prices suffer once those local inventory measures have been met, I'm guessing. Yeah. But what's your take? Yeah, I mean, it's possible, but it's also not new. I mean, the purchasing for the stockpile has almost solely come out of China, which, again, has people somewhat nervous. But that's been happening for three or four years now. So China's been very intent on buying in and buying in and buying in. So we're not really sure what the uh, quality of their stockpile is looking like. We're not sure whether there's there's a lot which is useless um, and they need to keep purchasing. So it really gets a bit difficult when you have one country holding such a level of stocks to know exactly what their impetus is. So that's probably where a lot of that nervousness comes in. But yes, so we'll, we'll wait and see what further sort of moves are. But there is, as I said, some concern that there could be some volatility if China changed direct direction. Maddie, we've seen reports recently that the quality of Black Sea region grain out of Russia, the Ukraine and Kazakhstan has gone up considerably this year, but the region also has a substantial price advantage over Australia, particularly with the relatively high AUD. How do you see that competition playing out in the medium and longer term? Well, it's interesting you say that, actually, because some of the uh, price increase recently has come off the back of concerns that Russia is going to have a dry period. Now, so recently they have had some decent rains for their new plantings, but there was some concern for a while there that there would be drought or dry conditions across a lot of Russia that would, that would reduce its harvest. My understanding of the Indonesian and, and Southeast Asian markets are that, you know, Australia can't supply to their requirements. And so 
some of that premium coming out of the Black Sea region, I think, is about their capacity to supply. I think there's a reasonably well-held view that our grain is of superior quality, the milling characteristics that suits that rising middle class consumption pattern. And that's our niche, even though it's you know our major market. It's, it's still something where quality stands us in good stead, but we can never supply the volume that the Black Sea region can can bring to these markets. Okay, well, the beef market never fails to deliver, it seems, and once you think you're at the ceiling of prices, you look away and are back and it's higher again. Michael, where is it going to end? It's been a fascinating year for beef in terms of prices and then 2021 is looking really interesting. We all know that the last two years, 2018 and 2019, um, prices went way down with all the selling coming out of the drought. In 2020, it rained and the restockers worked hard to rebuild their herds with all this grass. And as prices headed up and through that 800 cent mark, where as of uh, today, they remain. So, as you say, where is it going in 2021? Well, the outlook's good for the rain going forward. So, presuming that there is ample grass for a while, there is ample reasonably priced feed for a while with the good grain crops, and the restockers are continuing on their path because the herd rebuild is going to be a very slow one. That could mean upward pressure on prices for a while. And it's not just the restockers. Certainly, they are leading the price push, but the feedlotters aren't too far behind with demand staying strong for them and their product and with the economics of feedlots with reasonably priced feed also staying good. So sitting behind that is the processes. And what happens with the processes? They have to wear the tighter margins. We have seen some changes in Australian meat processing with some reductions in processing capacity, uh, some shutdowns here and there. But, but they still have to fill their orders. So it looks like prices will stay reasonably high for a while, but some calling off. Demand will stay reasonably strong, particularly domestically. And if anything, there may be some increase in the butcher shops and supermarket prices, but it looks likely that the consumer will absorb that and keep eating their beef. Michael, how long? I mean, um, I'm not sure what our sustainable beef herd actually is. Maybe it is 28, 29 million head back to where we were 10 years ago. What is the wait here until we're back at full supply into our general market? The word sustainable beef herd is an interesting one, Mark, because it has been volatile over the last decade. Um, a lot of this has been caused by two things. One was the increase in demand out of China in around the middle of the decade, and two was the drought. And that saw us go from a beef herd high of 29 million in 2013 down to around the 25-odd million that we are at the moment. It's got to increase, and it's on an upward path, but it could be slow, and it could be made slower by the large female kill that we saw in the herd due to the drought. So to get back to the level we saw in 2017 of 26 million, that could take us another four years from now, and that's assuming all things being equal. That's based on our modelling. In fact, to get back to where we were in 2013, that could take us almost a decade. We're forecasting that to be 2029. What does this say for the, the herd and the prices as well? That the rebuild is slow, uh, that the restockers will continue to build their operations because for a lot of them, the economics still remain good if the grass remains green particularly and the demand remains strong. Uh, so it could say that it is a, a lean but reasonably strong industry uh, for a fair while to come. So if it's a restocker-led market, I mean, we've been thinking, gee, prices just have to soften. 
is the export market likely to keep pace if you normalise seasons and the rebuild? Do exports keep pace with current price or, in fact, what is the level if it's not today's price? Exports are something that really the beef industry needs to treat with caution. They have been good, but there are a number of growing factors uh, that mean it could get more and more competitive. Out of all of them, perhaps the biggest one is currency. Uh, a strong Australian dollar means that Australian beef increasingly finds itself at odds with the cheaper price but good quality South American product. So that's one area that uh, needs to be to be treated very carefully. The second one is US competition. The Chinese particularly are already needing to buy a lot of US agricultural products to fulfill some trade agreements. US will grow, particularly with the new administration in terms of competitors in the Chinese markets, but also in our important markets in Japan and Korea. And the third one, and it's Australia's other big market after China, Japan and Korea, is the US itself. And in a sort of domino reaction, the fact that the Chinese pig herd is recovering from African swine fever means that the build-up in US beef that would have gone into China is now needing to find use back in the US. Uh, the other thing is that the US meat processing sector has recovered from its own COVID issues which means there will be less space in the US market for Australian beef, and there are also South American competitors in there. So even with those three factors alone, it is going to be a cautious outlook out there, and price may well start to impact that, particularly if the Australian dollar stays where it is. Okay, so the the sheep market continues its stellar run. It's, um, it's cycled a little, but we're seeing a fantastic season and a lot of lambs coming through the market. Um, Maddie, how are prices holding out as we enter, I guess, the peak of the spring flush period? Yeah, prices so far are doing really well, actually. Despite the dips that we took in the middle of the year, primarily as a result of COVID, I think we've seen the sheep market or land market come back to pretty much where it was last year, or actually a little bit above where it was last year, to be honest. And so it really has shown the resilience and the, the fundamentals of the market really are quite strong. So it's been really good. Um, as you said, there are a lot of lambs on the ground. There's a really good marking rate and really fat lambs, we have to say, because there is a lot of feed going around as well. So we're looking at a, a really strong season. So add to that continued impetus towards rebuilding, which is supporting a lot of the market right now. And you can't talk about the sheep flock rebuild without talking about cattle prices in a way, because there are quite a few producers out there who are tending back towards sheep while the cattle prices are so high and so difficult to rebuild at such high prices. So we're getting a lot of producers uh, buying into the sheep market, which is helping keep prices stronger. And in our opinion, if that continues, which we can't see any reason why it wouldn't, and we have good seasonal conditions next year, that peak lamb, trade lamb price that we see in the middle of the year might even threaten the 1,000 cent mark next year, which is a big, big mark for it to get to. So things are looking up. The national flock is doing well in terms of rebuilding. And off the back of that, slaughter rates are down as farmers hold over their lambs. But having said that, again, carcass weights are up because there's a good amount of feed on the ground, so that isn't likely to restrict supply. Yardings are differing, obviously, between states. So New South Wales, we've had a lot of the spring flush start to come through. South Australia, we have too. Victoria hasn't quite hit its straps when it comes to yardings yet, so we would expect a bit of price softening 
through to Christmas as the, as the Victorian spring flush hits the market, but that's not unusual. It happens every year. The other big story is, is the number of sheep or ewes primarily that are coming across from the West. The West isn't having such a good season. We're having, um, we've got pretty poor seasonal conditions, some low soil moisture, and those high prices that are being paid for ewes across in the East are seeing a lot um, being transported across the Nullarbor the other story with sheep is obviously feeds into the restocking narrative, but the price of price of mutton and the price of ewes. So mutton is now sitting above 630 cents, um, and that gap between trade lambs and mutton prices, is, the gap is the lowest on record. So that's showing you really that the impetus is coming a lot from those restockers and those people keen to get any number of sheep on the ground or use on the ground that they possibly can. Just quickly, exports, which have been a fairly strong driver of prices in the sale yard for quite some time, now they're coming back. We're not quite back to the same levels we were at last year, but there has been a really strong improve since the COVID period. So there's every strong sign for the exports going forward. And a quick reminder on our sales balance here in sheep. I mean, I was listening with curiosity to some metropolitan radio this morning where a consumer was lamenting the price of lamb and why is it so because everywhere in the countryside it's green there's sheep all over the place beautiful lambs why am I paying so much but it's really about where our product is so popular is it not? Mm, it absolutely is. And it's also a story of the returns to the farmers. Essentially, what the cattle market is doing at the moment, the sheep market did a few years ago, it did about three years ago, um, and it had a dramatic increase in price and those prices have held. So you've got a lot of producers who've bought in at a certain rate and can only really accept a certain rate when they're selling at the sale yard. Uh, having said that, retail prices haven't increased that much in recent years for, beef, for both beef and uh, lamb. So there is obviously a bit of a ceiling there for Australian consumers. Um, so it means that most of the growth in prices or volume might have to come out through export markets. But as I said, they continue to look quite strong. Our export markets, I mean, they probably take 70 plus percent of lamb. Um, you can correct me on that. But China is important. We do have a spread of concentration. Is, is there a China alarm in sheep like there might be for some other commodities or not? Yeah, not as yet. Um, and you're absolutely right. Yeah, the primary markets we've got spread from the US to the Middle East to China to Papua New Guinea. Um, where the sheep export market or the lamb export market is really very highly diversified. And I think that's added to the fact that Australia really is one of the few sources for sheep meat across the globe. There are a few others. But I think that is one of the reasons why China hasn't put it on one of the public hit lists, it just can't replace Australian uh, land export supply from anywhere else. So as yet, we're not seeing producers see much concern about, uh, about China targeting our exports, but it's a bit of a volatile situation, so we, we can never say never. All right, the other half of sheep is wool, and the fibre markets have perhaps not performed as strongly as some of the food markets that we've seen in recent time. Wool no exception, big China concentration, but Bryony, does it look like we've bounced off the bottom of wool and where are we at now and what can we expect? It does look like we've uh, bounced off the bottom. We've consistently seen above the 1,000 cents a kilogram mark over the last couple of months for the EMI. And whilst there has been some intraweek volatility, we have seen that consistent level met, even with the much higher volumes hitting the market, upwards of thirty to 40,000 bales. So 
What we're seeing is although there has been a drop in the global consumption of retail spending and consumer spending on apparel, that sort of thing, we are seeing that the important autumn winter demand from Europe is still driving demand for that wool product. There's also demand locally from China for the domestic market. As we're saying, they're not being as impacted by any sort of second wave and they're pretty much returned to business as usual in China there. And how are we seeing the animal welfare component play out in pricing and markets in wool at the moment? Um, it's not that long ago that we were over in China when the market was a bit stronger, I might add, a year or so ago, where some of the processors were talking about only wanting non-mules to wool. Um, is that continuing to be a feature of this market? Yeah, it's interesting. We we know that New Zealand's uh, obviously gone 100% non-mules as of 2018. In Australia, it is a bit more of a contentious issue in terms of whether farms are able to go along those non-mules paths. And there is the the new form of non-mulesing in terms of the sheep freeze branding and how that will play out. We are seeing AWEX is coming through with some data that's showing that non-mulesed wool is receiving a premium. It's also receiving higher clearance rates as well, interestingly. So it'll be interesting to see how it plays out in terms of the way that they require the labelling of the mules versus non-mules or sheep freeze branding into the market. I think uh, the buyers are, are really keen to understand exactly what's happening there on the farm in order to understand what pricing should be for those particular products. Yes, so some challenging dilemmas there for growers, how they tackle their management decisions with their with their animals. I wonder if there's a view in the room on wool sheep versus cattle still trading in very profitable territory, good seasons underpinning that. So wool sheep, cattle all looking really strong. Um, who makes the best investment case at the minute? It's an interesting one, Mark. The economics, as Brian has talked about, are uh, good for sheep at the moment. Uh, wool has its challenges. Uh, we've talked about in terms of sheep meat and the cattle ones are definitely good. So there will be those levels of decisions made on the economics, which do I think is going to make me more money next year uh, in the next five years as well. But we've also got to be honest in agriculture that there will certainly be a level of decisions made on what you feel is the specialty you have for your farm and what you would rather be farming. And that even if things perhaps do look better for some producers for cattle, they will stick with farming. It's what they know, it's what they love, it's what they do well, and they are still going to do reasonably well out of it. Thank you, Michael. Um, A positive decision-making there for for producers. Um, Moving on to cotton as our second fibre today. Fantastic crop, an industry very adept at growing it well with water, which has been lacking lately. But Bryony, things are looking better for the upcoming cotton season. Just what sort of uh, output do we expect? Yeah, so obviously we've had a few years of drought uh, and we are hearing that the La Nina is bringing the rains across much of the country with many of the farms receiving a full profile of water and, and water in the dams as well. So cotton farmers have been confidently planting some more cotton across the country, although there are areas particularly around 
Queensland that that hasn't seen that La Nina rains yet, and we are seeing really high temperatures across central New South Wales and Queensland over the last week or so. So it'll be interesting to see how La Nina plays out over the next few months. It's expected to go to until March. But the volumes that have been planted, we're expecting to see production up to around 2 million bales compared to last year's 12-year low of 590,000. So interestingly, and I'd be interested to hear Maddie's view on this in terms of uh, the comparison in prices with uh, grains in terms of how farmers can consistently look to plant cotton when it's so uncertain in terms of when the next rains might come and when they might be able to get those significant water allocations to plant the cotton. Maddie? Yeah, thanks, Barney. It's obviously a real concern for a lot of cotton producers that volatility and rainfall is their lifeblood and it can really make or break them for a year. But you're seeing a lot of them diversifying between not only wheat but also between uh, pulses with chickpeas and other similar um, crops. So there are a lot of different decisions being made out there to affect cotton producers to be able to diversify their produce base and make sure that their income um, can stay relatively stable from year to year. I think the the other thing with cotton growing is that, you know, you're heavily invested to cotton really and whilst a lot of broadacre commodities represent great margins with a good season right now, um, it's really got to be about water for cotton that gets the right overall return for the capital that's been invested on most places. Brian, is there any concern in cotton as we get water back into the system to produce that two million plus bales uh, we're actually selling into a a market with high global supplies and some demand issues that might play out through the northern hemisphere as they continue to be COVID impacted yeah that's right mark we're seeing the stock use rate globally remain above 90 percent with ongoing lockdowns happening in the key markets of europe and the u.s impacting global consumption Demand for textiles and apparel is highly income elastic and therefore susceptible to any change in consumer confidence. It's expected this will result in the prices reaching their lowest levels in real terms in almost 20 years. Meanwhile, China, the largest spinning centre, are holding stocks of around 98% of their yearly domestic use. And while there's been no official change to the cotton trade agreement between China and Australia, there's potential for impacts for from the ongoing trade tensions, with rumours that mills have been discouraged from buying Australian cotton. Longer term, prices for, price forecasts remain closer to $500 a bale. Australian farmers will really need to continue their focus on efficiencies and production to remain profitable. Thank you. Well, overall positive news, I think, in the face of that demand uncertainty, nonetheless a better crop coming up, which really puts everyone back in the game. Moving on to dairy insights now, and uh, things have looked worse in dairying, I would say, and a return to season, a profitable price for those with a season, a bit more water availability, all adding up to a bit more milk, Michael. It's, um, it's great to see a bit more positivity in the dairy industry. Absolutely, Mark. Things for a volatile industry like dairy are looking better than they have looked in for a while. As you say, the rain certainly hasn't hurt at all. There's been more feed in a lot of dairy regions, particularly in some of the regions in Western Victoria and Gippsland as well, than there has been for years. 
That's been strong. Demand has continued to be strong for the product domestically uh, and internationally. Obviously, there's going to be some other factors there. But perhaps the most interesting part of analysing the dairy industry at the moment is that after numbers had fallen for years, and we have to remember that 2020 did mark 20 years since dairy deregulation, and that had a long-term impact on milker numbers, obviously overall herd numbers, acreage as well, it has plateaued, it has stabilised and it has stabilised for a few years. And that's a sign of strength in the dairy industry because that shows that more and more dairy farmers are not electing to either get out of the industry or to change into beef cattle or to change into sheep country as well, but stay there and continue to have confidence in their operations. The other point to add to that is that while the milker numbers remain steady and remain strong, the yields continue to go up and they go up at a steadier and stronger rate than just about any other yield increase in other large Australian agri-sectors. So that means that milk production and dairy product production continues to increase. So as you say, all looking pretty good for the industry right now. And you say uh, markets remain strong for dairy, but it's a highly competitive environment as we compete with the Americans, the Europeans and New Zealand, of course, going into the critical Asian markets. We can't help but talk about China as our number one trading partner and they're a big consumer of dairy as well. So is all that giving confidence over the next few seasons to continue to produce more and more in our industry with confidence that consumers will, will take what we have to offer without impacting price? We do come back to that cautious confidence yet again, as we do with every agri-sector. Certainly, China is the big importer of Australian dairy products. It is interesting to look at this in that it hasn't been impacted yet by some of the other dynamics between Australia and China and agri-products. And perhaps also worth remembering that one of the very important products there is infant milk formula. And that is fundamentally important as a product for so many Chinese consumers with their families as well. And any impacts on that would be very interesting to watch what the social effects would be uh, if such a thing happened. So that's almost unique in terms of watching that. In terms of the competitors you raised, each of them will have their own issues going forward for Australia. The American dairy producers got a lot of support during the election campaign and they will get a lot of support in trade push pushes by their incoming government. So they will strengthen. The Europeans will probably strengthen because they are continuing to reduce the subsidies that make them produce less milk. So they may well produce more and they drive very hard bargains with markets like China. But New Zealand, on the other hand, following its election, is likely to see regulations in agriculture which may well reduce its milk output. So if anything, they could be less of a competitor for Australia in some of the important markets going forward. And back on the farm, I mean, you mentioned deregulation being 20 years on. Is this what we're seeing now in stabilisation and the rebuild of volume? And even then, you're thinking about those yields uh, per cow at getting towards 6,500 litres on average. Is this a case for deregulation really shoring up a sustainable industry where those left have got the means to operate effectively and profitably and can now invest going forward? Is it a good case? Because there's been, there's been talk of re-regulation back into this market, especially over the last four or five years as well. Where do you think that kind of stuff serves us? 
issues of deregulation and changes in any of these programs remain controversial for decades, and they still are in the dairy industry, just as they are to a degree in grain, in the wool industry and others. But you are right. What we are seeing now is a generation of dairy operators who are very efficient uh, and who are innovative as well. So not just in continuing to improve their yields, their returns on their operations, but also looking at new products and new markets. And we've also got to take into account that what's also happening at the moment is that technology means that the infrastructure you need for a sustainable and a profitable dairy operation is becoming gradually cheaper. And what that's also meaning gradually is that while labour has remained an issue in the dairy industry, perhaps more than most other major industries, that will become less of an issue as the infrastructure becomes less labour intensive. So absolutely, the industry that we have at the moment has a lot of innovative uh, producers in there, a lot of forward thinking producers and a lot of other factors certainly on its side to run better and better operations. All right, a focus on pigs and uh, not a commodity that we cover every edition, oh, I guess really there's the COVID impact on our pork industry here in Australia, but African swine fever being the big global issue, the big China issue and the big potential issue if it were ever to find its way into the Australian market. Let's hope not. Where's the balance of all of these things, Michael? Look, pigs are an interesting one to look at at this time of year, particularly as a lot of people are looking to buy their Christmas hams as well. Let's quickly look at pigs from the two points that you raised there. Um, and in perhaps with the African swine fever and China one, it's going to impact a lot of other things. We know about African swine fever hitting the Chinese pig herd. We know that at the start of African swine fever coming into China, China had about half the world's pigs, around 420 million of them. And that really went down considerably, down to a bit over 250 million, but has recovered very strongly. The Chinese have done what the Chinese do very well, and that is very quickly make their system more efficient. So it's gone from a pork producing system of small rural farmers to big industrial and far more cytosanitary um, operations as well. So that's recovering. What's that mean for the world's pork and other meat industries? China probably won't need the forecast amount of pork imports or other meat imports that the rest of the world thought they would need, and that's going to have to go somewhere. And we'll see that playing out in other ways. So in terms of African swine fever, yes, it was a big impact, but the recovery is happening there. And if African swine fever hit Australia, as you mentioned, largely our pork industry here is so well insulated and so well protected, chances are there may well be minimal impact, not no impact, but minimal impact on the domestic side. On the other part of the domestic side of the Australian pork industry, it is a quiet but strong industry and it continues to grow strongly over the years. Uh, it's uh, continuing on an upward level of production uh, as Australians continue to eat more and more pork products. We were eating 100,000 tonnes 60 years ago. We're eating 600,000 odd tonnes of pork products at the moment. What does the Australian pork industry do domestically? It uh, largely provides the on-the-bone products you buy and processed pork increasingly comes from the US, uh, less and less from Canada and still a considerable amount from Denmark, but the US the big importer. We also continue to be a strong exporter of pork products, particularly to Singapore, but also to a range of markets like Papua New Guinea, like New Zealand, like Vietnam. So 
So continuing to grow strongly and quietly, uh, there will be domestic competition from imports, but the industry is continuing to tackle those in an innovative way. And and I think that's a good description of industry as being a, a quite high-performing one. The, the big cost for producers is feed. It's a, a big component of total costs and I guess the industry might have looked forward to the potential of lower grain prices coming into this harvest, but as we've talked about today, they've remained persistently high. But is there a decent case to make for the feed market here in Australia continuing to play a bigger role in the uptake of grain that's produced here and and an opportunity for both animal producers and feed grain specialist growers to to make the economics work work well on both sides? The feed industry in Australia is, once again, another one in the background which is fascinating and continues to evolve very quickly, as you say. Whether it's with the integrated supply chains that need it most, like pork, like chicken particularly, and with the growing aquaculture sector as well, you're absolutely right. The price of grain has a pretty strong impact on where things are going. But at the same time, the infrastructure for feed production continues to go down. The R&D that goes into changing feed formulas and some of the spectacular results we see coming out of those continues to develop and improve the economics. Perhaps one of the big decisions for so many people in the pork industry, chicken industry, aquaculture industry is whether to integrate or to outsource as well. But uh, it will continue to develop. It's developing fast and you could arguably say that Australia is world leading in a number of the feed developments which are continuing to be exported uh, to be utilised globally. Thank you, Michael. Well, looking back on the year, uh, one that many in our community would love to forget, uh, nonetheless, for agribusiness, uh, all things equal, it's performed incredibly well. I think there's a continuing mood, and rightly so, for optimism in the outlook. Uh, it, it may be worth fastening your seatbelt just the same as we consider the trade uncertainties and the regulatory environment that will come, um, particularly in relation to COVID. We hope for the best, but I would say on balance, our industry has proven that with anywhere near average seasonal conditions, we can be highly pro- profitable. And I think we're making up a lot of ground from what droughts have taken out. Um, not completely. However, um, let's hope for a good wet uh, summer for the north and uh, getting into a another decent seasonal cycle next year. I think we'd be absolutely well on the way. So thank you for your commentary today, Maddie, Michael, Bryony and Adelaide, and look forward to seeing you out there and getting into our next edition post-Christmas and into the new year of 2021.